We'll be looking this evening again at a short section of that book, just a few verses in chapter 20, specifically verses 4 through 6. You may have noticed that during the narrative portions of the book of Exodus, in the front portion of that book, we were moving quite quickly, taking large sections of text to learn the narrative and to get the the wholeness of the story. And now as we come to chapter 20, we're slowing down. We're going to be looking week by week at each of the Ten Commandments. We're going to take one commandment each week. Last week, we looked at the first commandment in which God tells us that there are to be no other gods before Him. This week, we will look at the second commandment. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. And keep my commandments. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Oh Lord, we ask this evening that you would open up your word to us. Lord, that you would allow us to set aside our preconceived notions, our preferences, and our personal desires. And that we would hear you in your word. And that hearing you, we would long to obey you, to honor you, for you alone are worthy. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is a saying that is in Latin, and as a former Latin scholar, I'll use every opportunity I can to share that with you. It's, it goes, non res gustibus. If you haven't ever heard of that, maybe you've heard of it this way. There is no accounting for tastes. And that principle is that everyone has their own taste. And there's no logic behind each of that. And, and we have conflicting tastes. I remember that earlier in our lives, in our marriage, when our family moved many times and went and looked at home, shopping for a home, I remember being struck walking into a home and thinking, who thinks purple is a good color for a carpet? Or why would someone put lime green paint on the wall? Now, you have to understand, I'm the sort of person that when I buy a house, everything has to be neutral. Everything is decorated with a design toward maximizing return if you have to sell the house. This is something that happens when you move four or five times in the first eight or nine years of your marriage. But we see it in other ways too. Perhaps when you first got married and you had visits from the in-laws, your mother-in-law would come and visit and look at where you put the dishes and the silverware 
and she would say something like, oh, that's where you store that. We've never stored that there. Or it would be, oh, I see you've decorated the walls this way. That's certainly an interesting way to do that. And, and we see immediately that there is no compromise there. There is a difference in taste that manifests itself quite easily. Well, that is in a fashion what the second commandment is all about. Because our tastes are not limited to the food we like, to the decoration of our homes. Our tastes extend to worship. And we can see this just if we spanned America, if we took a poll or a survey of the worship of American churches, we would see all sorts of elements, all sorts of styles. We would see churches that are basically the worship is in a sermon in its entirety is the whole worship service. And then there are churches where there is not even a sermon. There might be a drama or a play or some sort of film on the screen. And what drives most of worship in most of America is taste. It's what we think we like or what we think others will like. And I dare say it's sad to say that we rarely ever sit down and ask the question, what does God like? What does God want in his worship? Well, God has an opinion about that, and he has given it to us in one of the Ten Commandments. He could not have made it clearer. He put it in a prominent place in the scriptures in this second commandment. And I'd like to look at this commandment this evening. This is a commandment that is often misunderstood. As we'll see in a few moments, some don't even think it is a commandment. That it is merely part of another. But what I would like us to do this evening is to look at three things. First, I'd like us to look at the context of the commandment. How this commandment comes to us. Then second, we will look at the commandment itself, as we did last week and will in weeks to come. We'll look at both the negative and the positive aspects of the commandment. And then finally, we'll look at why God has given us this commandment. Well, let's begin with the context of this commandment. And it's good for us to remember, to be reminded, that it comes in the structure of the Decalogue. That is, the ten laws that God has given to us. Scripture talks about it as the ten words of God, a summary of God's law. One well-known theologian and commentator, John Calvin, has put together a harmony of the first five books of the Bible. And what he does is he takes each of the Ten Commandments in this harmony, and he then places under each commandment all of the appropriate laws that are found in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Because these commandments are not the entirety of God's law. They are just a summary. Now, the curious thing is is that some look at this commandment, beginning in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And they say, God is telling us not to worship idols. Don't make an idol of a created thing and worship it. That's what God's telling us. There's a problem with that interpretation. 
All you need to do is go back to last week. If you've forgotten, you can go to our website and watch the video, listen to the sermon. God's already told us that. The first commandment is, there shall be no other gods before me. And that includes every category of idol. So is God stuttering here? Is, is he repeating himself? You'll have no other gods but me? And, and really, I mean it? Let me explain what I mean by that. It is true that some are confused by this and that there are even some Christian traditions that do not count this as a commandment at all. They lump what we call the second commandment and interpret it from Scripture as a part of the first commandment. And this sometimes can lead to uh, humorous results. I remember a story that a school teacher told me one day when she had a student, an elementary student, who came to her and said, Teacher, I need some help. For my Sunday school class on Sunday, I'm supposed to draw a picture of what the seventh commandment is all about. Now, if you know what the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. You can just imagine how difficult that was for the school teacher wondering, how am I going to teach this elementary student how to draw the forbidding of adultery? Well, the thing is, is that this little girl came from a tradition, a Roman Catholic tradition, in which the second commandment was not the commandment we have before our, ourselves. It was lumped in with the first, and the second commandment is actually, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the way that they get back to Ten Commandments is they take the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, and they divide it into two. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. That becomes the ninth and 10th commandments. And so when this little child was asking how to draw the seventh commandment, what she was really asking is, how do I draw, you shall not steal. That's much easier prospect than you shall not commit adultery. But there are traditions, primarily the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, that do not see this commandment as separate and distinct from the first. And that has ramifications. So if you wonder why their worship is the way it is, why they have idols or uh, icons in their churches, that's why. There has to be something else that God is telling us here if this is, as we believe, truly one of the Ten Commandments. It cannot be about who we worship. It has to be about how we worship. And that is, it doesn't just talk about the creation of physical items to facilitate our worship of false gods. It has to also encompass that we are not to make physical items to facilitate the worship of the true and living God either. Now, there are also cultural considerations for this commandment. You can see why God is giving it to Israel. Israel had just come out of Egypt, as we know, and they were going into Canaan. And in both Egypt and in Canaan, worship was dedicated to the whim of the king. If Pharaoh decided we're all going to worship lying down today, that's what we do. If he said we're going to worship facing the east, that's what we do. And he could change the focus of worship at his own desire and whim. And that was also true of the kings in Canaan. So Israel is going from idolatry to idolatry. 
Now we see the need for this commandment also because of the New Testament times. It is amazing to me how similar the culture of Rome in the days of the apostles was to our culture today. If you were to study the first century, you would be surprised and amazed at the level of similarities between Rome and the United States. I'll just give you one example that's applicable here to our study tonight. The most important thing in Rome was tolerance. You had to let everyone have whatever God they wanted. And if you declared that there was only one true God, you were outside the pale. You see, why the Romans hated Christians was not because they worshipped God, but because they claimed that God was the only God to be worshipped. And you could worship no other God. And so the Roman culture viewed Christians as being intolerant, bigoted, narrow. Does that sound familiar? Because that's what we see today in our age. As long as you allow everyone to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, there's peace. But the minute you begin to declare truth, there's hostility. And, and this is true even in our day as we see this. Think about all of the religions of our day that are willing to interchange pieces and parts. One of the most famous sayings of the age is that all roads lead to heaven. That no matter what you worship or how you worship, we're all basically traveling on the same path toward a same generic amorphous God. Who, by the way, has no real opinions about anything. That's because the last context that comes, this commandment comes to us with is human nature. We are who we are. And that is that we like things that are tangible. And we are actually afraid of the intangible. We like things that we can see and touch, feel, that it seems more real to us. Everything else has almost an air of hocus pocus about it. We're not sure that it really exists. I think we see this most often in our present day in the fear of the intangible with various financial markets. Back in the days when I was an attorney, I found it very difficult to explain to clients how interest rates worked, how you could manipulate interest rates and buy certain sorts of rates and have interest rate products as if it were a phone or a car. And, and we've even seen that this past week. How many of you understood what shorting a stock was before this week. Now I think we've all become experts, thanks to the biggest news story. But that's an intangible thing. You know, we, when we think of the stock market, we think of, I'm going to buy a stock, I'm going to pay money for it, they're going to send me a certificate, I'm going to put it in my fire safe, and then later I can sell it at a profit. But shorting a stock is a way in which I somehow borrow a stock that I don't have and haven't bought from someone else who owns it at a promise to sell it back later to them at a certain price. And it's all about the intangible. And this causes us to be afraid. 
And this carries over into our worship. We prefer a God who is tangible, whom we can touch, whom we can get our arms around. In a sense, a God we can control. And part of human nature is, if you'll permit me a simplicity, we like what we like, right? That's what we want. We've decided what we like, and that's what we want. And we carry that beyond the realm of what phone we like, or what food we like, or what car we like, to what kind of a God we like. God is in our image. And we do this especially with our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen various pictures of Jesus? Have you ever wondered why Jesus looks exactly like the people who are drawing him? Now, in a sense, Jesus is the only Savior of all mankind. But I always wondered how in classic pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ, he did not look Jewish. He didn't have any classically Jewish features. He was classically drawn as a Scandinavian hippie pearl white skin, and long flowing hair. But if you go out of that classic European mold of pictures of Christ, if you go into the African American community, you will find that Jesus is African American. If you go to the church in China, you'll see pictures of Jesus where he is Chinese. That's because we draw Jesus in our image. We want him to look like us. So this is the context in which this commandment comes to us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our tendency toward sin. He knows our tendency toward wanting to be in control. And so he gives us this commandment. Let's look first at the negative aspect of this commandment. The commandment tells us not to make any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven, in the earth, under the earth, or in the water under the earth. And this is applied to us so that we will not follow through on our desire to make or create God. Now, as with all of the commandments, it is easy to find application to our unbelieving friends and neighbors, the pagans around us. Because we say to ourselves, well, they make gods all the time. They fashion them out of wood and stone, gilt, silver, and gold. Isaiah tells us about this. The psalmist this morning told us about this. They make gods that have mouths but cannot speak, ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see. But as we saw last week with the first commandment, we must see this week. This commandment applies to you and me as well. It actually complements the first commandment. We are not to worship any other God, but we are also not to worship the true God as we desire. This commandment forbids our desire to control God, to fashion him in our image as we would have him be. You see, God does not exist for us. We exist for God. God is primary. 
He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is in control. And we are constantly tempted to fashion God in our image or the way in which we wish him to be so that we might control him. A good example of this is found in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, the 12th chapter. You may remember that after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And the northern kingdom was composed of 10 of the tribes, and the southern kingdom was composed of just the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, had a problem. He had people in his kingdom who still wanted to worship God. And the problem was that the place where you worshiped God was in the temple in Jerusalem. And so he had to figure out a way to stop his subjects from leaving his kingdom to go worship God. And so what he did was he set up temples in Israel. And he was a shrewd king. He said, if one temple in Judah is good, then two in Israel is even better. I'll put one in Dan, and I'll put one in Bethel. And therefore, my people will be able to go and worship there. Now, what will I put in this temple? And he scratched his head, and he thought, and he said, I need an image of God that will draw people to itself. And he looked back in Israel's history and he found the place where God had been fashioned by Israel. On the steps of Mount Sinai. When Israel had fashioned the golden calf. And he said, I will not have one calf, I'll have two. One at each temple. And therefore, I will be in control of God and the worship of God. We see this even amongst pagans, you may recall in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, that when Paul came in and preached the gospel, what the pagans in Ephesus were worried about was the money that they were losing because Paul was drawing people away from the worship of false gods like Diana. They weren't concerned for Diana's glory. They thought about all the money they were losing and how it would affect their lives. They wanted a God that they could control for their own benefit. But even less harshly, this commandment prohibits us from desiring to understand God on our terms rather than His. You see, we could describe a part of who God is, and yet still be wrong in our description of God. That's actually what the golden calf was. There was a sense in which when Israel created the calf and said, this is your God that has brought you up out of Egypt, what they were saying is, our God is a strong God, a mighty God. And so they fashioned an animal that was strong and powerful. But that was the only aspect of God that they revealed. They'd forgotten everything else that God had told them about himself. And so instead, they fashioned a false God, naming it the true God. But they had done it in such a way that they had dishonored him. 
we need to be very careful with visible representation of God. The Children's Catechism says that God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the visible representation of God. But Isaiah tells us that he had no form or majesty that we would be drawn to him. And, and we have no pictures of what Jesus looked like. Perhaps you, like me, find it curious that in all of the catacombs, of all of the places where Christians ever lived in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is not one image of Jesus. Not one. There are pictures of Christians worshiping, of the church, of the sacraments, but there are no pictures of Jesus. Well, you might argue, we need pictures of Jesus. We need images of God. This commandment doesn't understand our times because pictures are the way in which children learn. And when someone raises that issue with me, I will often counter and say, oh, so you mean pictures are like the books of those who aren't learned. And they'll say, exactly, like children. And then I'll say, do you know who said that statement? It was Pope Gregory. It was a pope who did not want people to read their Bibles. He wanted them to be led by pictures. He discouraged them from reading the word to find out what God was like. And so now we live in a day and age in which it is almost impossible to find children's material that does not have pictures of Jesus in it. And you might be shocked to know that a hundred years ago, that was completely unknown. There were no pictures of Jesus in any books or in any churches, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. But now, it's everywhere. I still remember, to somewhat a humorous fashion, going into churches with my children when they were very young. And there would be stained glass windows or statues or images in these churches purporting to be of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say to my children, look, it's the prophet Elijah. Look, there's the apostle Paul. Because, of course, they wouldn't have a picture of Jesus, so that bearded man must be Paul or Elijah. It's everywhere around us. And the thing about it is, is that if we think about the days in which the Bible was written, they were the days in which 99% of people could not read. They were illiterate. If there was any society ever that needed images, it was that society. And so I don't really want to see or hear arguments against God's word because Instagram is big. Or because videos are the thing nowadays. And we need to reach people through a visual medium in the days of the Exodus, in the days of Paul, you couldn't reach people through books because they couldn't read. And yet still, the church knew not to create images of God. This commandment forbids the desire that we have to please ourselves through God. That is, making Him our instrument in our worship. Having worship that we desire, 
that meets our needs. And so we think to ourselves, if we don't feel like praying, it doesn't matter that God commands prayer. We don't need to have that in our worship. Or if we are not taken to singing, we shouldn't have singing in our worship, even though God commands it. Or perhaps most damagingly, if sermons to us are long and dull and boring, do we really need an exposition of God's word? Can't we just have something that's more uplifting or entertaining? This commandment forbids all of these sins, and it acts as a guard for us against our own sinful proclivities. Well, there's not just a negative aspect to this command. There's also a positive aspect. And this commandment requires a commitment to God's word. If we are not to worship God, if we are not to fashion God, if we are not to create an image of God after our own desires and wants, where can we go? We have to go to God's word. If it is not our desires and preferences that are primary, but God's, where do we find God's desires and preferences? We find it in his word. And, and that is at the heart of what we Presbyterians call the regulative principle of worship. That we are to worship God as God has commanded in his word. He knows what he desires most. He knows what is most beneficial for us, and that's why he has given to us his word. Now, we must understand that this is not so that we can create a checklist or just come up with the proper form of worship, because it is not enough for us to simply avoid error. Remember, the Ten Commandments are not just about avoiding sin. It's about positively doing what is righteous and pleasing to God. And so the positive aspect of this command requires our submission to God. God knows himself and God knows us better than we do. You see, God knows who we are, our tendencies, our needs. And he knows who he is and how he ought to be worshipped. You see, worship is not about us. It's rather about God. Why would we seek to impose our preferences on God? Have you ever had the experience of having someone come alongside you and correct the way that you were doing something when it was very clear that they knew far less about it than you did? That maybe they didn't have a de degree in that area? that they didn't have expertise, but they had the gall to tell you how to do that better than you thought. It's discouraging, isn't it? Now imagine what that's like for God. That we come to God and say, no, 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 God, we understand what you've said in your word. We understand the commandments you've given. We understand how you've described the worship that we should give to you. But, you know, God, that really doesn't do it for us. It really doesn't fill our need. It really doesn't pump us up. So we're just going to do it just a little bit differently. Do we honestly think that we know more than God? That we know who he is? What he desires? More than he does himself? 
God takes this commandment and our worship of Him very seriously. There are many stories we could go to. I'll just share one with you from the Old Testament. There was a time in which Aaron's sons were conducting the worship of God. And God had made it very clear how he was to be worshipped. In this instance, sacrifices that were given to him. And Nadab and Abihu came and they offered what the Bible calls strange fire. That is, it specifies, it, they offered fire in a fashion in which God did not command. Now note the wording there. It's not that God forbade this fire. He did not command it positively. And God took this so seriously that Nadab and Abihu were immediately consumed with fire from heaven. Two priests, sons of the high priest. That's how seriously God takes this commandment. This commandment requires us to have a commitment to teach our children, to teach them God's word, what God desires, what God has commanded, how God will be worshipped, to grow them up with a desire to worship God according to his word. The third and last thing that I want us to see this evening is why God gave this commandment. And the primary reason that God gives this commandment is for His glory. Look with me, if you will, at our text in verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous for His glory. He will give His glory to no other, whether it is a false idol or whether it is to us as we decide how we are to worship God. Because when God allows us to worship Him according to our own preferences and dictates, and not His, that denigrates God. Luke puts it this way in Acts chapter 17, quoting Paul. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God will not be formed in our image according to what we think. And as soon as we do that, it changes the way we think about God. Let me ask you, if I mention the Holy Spirit, is there an image that immediately pops in your mind of a bird? The Holy Spirit is not a bird. He is not like a creature. That's not even what the text says in the baptism of Jesus. It says the Spirit descended like a dove descends. It doesn't say the Spirit became a bird and flapped his wings and came down to Jesus. But that's what we have interpreted it to be. And because we want to see the Spirit, because we want him to be tangible, we fashioned him as a bird. And that affects the way that we think about God, the Spirit, and His power. But when we worship God as He has commanded, then God is most glorified. 
The other thing that we must remember is that to worship God according to images or pictures gives us a slanted picture of who God is, a caricature. Because a picture of God cannot give us the whole image of God. How could we create a picture of Jesus that encompasses his tender compassion when the little ones are brought to him? And yet, his justice and anger at injustice when he overturns the, the money changers' tables. They're both Jesus. And we must understand all of who Jesus is, not just a part. And when we do this, when we fashion images of God, it does the exact opposite of what we are intending to teach about God because it gives us a false representation of God. God is glorified in His way of worship because it is, after all, His worship. Now, the second thing that God gives us this command for is for our good. Do you notice how the commandment continues? God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me. What could be worse for us than mistaking God? I can think of no other worse thing than being mistaken about the nature of God. And that's what God points out here. That if we're mistaken about God, if we treat God as someone who is someone that we are to obey, that we are to have serve us, then we have sinned in such a fashion that we are lost. You see a picture of this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 4, we see a description of the idolatry that is forbidden, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Oreb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of any male or female or any animal that is on the earth or any bird that flies in the air. So God is specifically saying here, watch yourselves because you never saw a form of who I am. So don't think that you can fashion me. But the interesting thing is, is that God warns us that when we begin down that road, it doesn't stop there. It's not just the fashioning of a false image. In verse 19, Moses writes, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So it goes from fashioning an image of the true God to worshiping images of false gods, the sun and the moon. And it doesn't even end there. Then at verse 23, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord has forbidden you. So then we move from fashioning images of the true God to images of false gods to forgetting God entirely. Forgetting the covenant that he has made with us. God is warning us for our own good. And the last thing that God warns us about or gives us a purpose for this commandment is for our children's good. Do you see how 
God describes our choice. We can either disobey His law and His word, and the iniquity of the fathers will be visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, you may look at that and say, that doesn't make any sense. I thought everyone paid for their own sins. I didn't have to pay for the sins of my father. And that's true. But I want you to just think about growing up in a family. If your father lies all the time, what do you think children will grow up doing? They'll grow up as liars. Because they'll think that's normal. That's ordinary. If your parents steal, don't be surprised if your children and grandchildren are thieves. Because they'll grow up thinking that's proper and normal. But I want you to also notice here the way God gives us encouragement. The iniquity is visited to the third and fourth generations, but the mercy and love of God is visited upon thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So when we keep the commandments of God before our children, they are drawn to know and love the God that we serve. And that has an effect upon generation and generation and generation. Some of you have experienced that. You can tell tales of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents who followed the Lord and walked with Him. And what a great blessing that is in your life. And you can then counter with the generations that follow you, your children and your grandchildren that follow and walk with the Lord. Because God is merciful. We have to understand these commandments are a blessing to us. They're not given to us as some sort of great cosmic downer or some limitation. No, God gives us these commands because He knows that by following His Word is how we will live best, how we will be blessed. And there is no greater blessing for you and for me than to know and serve and love the true God. So when God's word comes to you, count it as all joy that God has spoken to us, that we might serve him and love him. The first commandment tells us that we must worship God alone. The second commandment tells us that God is sovereign and he is supreme. God does not exist for our benefit. He is wiser than we are. His commands are given for our good. When we obey this command, we deepen our relationship with God. And we confess that we know God through how He has revealed Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't substitute any of your preferences or your imagination for Jesus. Come to God. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.